So why, why start off uh, the class with discussion? Well, it's because hopefully over the course of this week you did your homework. So whether you downloaded the study guide or you got it in print, um, you should have gone through your homework this morning, uh, up, leading up to this morning, because one of our main goals in this study along with uh, doing it both men and women. Hopefully you're able to maybe do this study with your spouse or significant other. That's a great benefit. Uh, but really the main goal is because we want to, by the end of this class, have developed habits, uh, have developed frameworks, uh, things, uh, think of it like a muscle memory, okay? Over the course of the next four weeks, we want to develop a kind of biblical muscle memory where we, on August 1st, can hopefully sit down with our Bibles and have a better understanding of how to study the Bible for ourselves than we did when we started this study in the month of July. And so that's why, as you noticed in your homework, there's a lot of reading through Philippians, like being in the text, you're looking for certain words, you're underlining things, you're some summarizing it in your own words. That's a great way to really kind of internalize uh, and begin to understand what is being said is to try to put it in your own words. If you were writing it, you didn't. But if you were writing it, how would you say it? So that's, that's really the main goal of this study this summer is, yes, we want to see what God has for us in the book of Philippians. But uh, another, I'd say, parallel goal to that is that uh, we want to be men who know how to understand and study our Bibles for ourselves and in the context of community. And so uh, lest you think that you're the only ones, you know, that you're like the faithful remnant, like there are about half of the men who are doing the study online. And so that's why we're recording this and we'll send the video out to you as well in case you doze off since it's early. So um, what we wanna do as teachers during this time, one of the great things, I would love it if you walk out of most of these classes going, yeah, I saw most of that. Uh, because that would be an indicator that this is working, that there's nothing novel necessarily about what I'm going to say or Cody's going to say or Jordan's going to say. It's not as though uh, just because we're pastors on staff that, that we are able to buy some commentary set that you can't, right? Like, or that we have special access to God. You know? like, it's our desire that you would go like, oh, wow, I actually saw that. And it'll hopefully be like affirming to you in the process. So really our job during this time is to kind of act like tour guides. And so we're getting in the bus together as it were, and we're going to just kind of drive through the passage. And I'm just going to point out some things along the way that the Lord stirred in my heart as I read through Philippians 1 like you. Um, and hopefully it'll be helpful for you. Maybe you'll, you'll have seen some of the same things. And maybe you'll walk away going, wow, it's, why didn't he hit that? And it's like, because God was doing something in my heart maybe different than yours, you know, but, uh, or maybe I just didn't see it. And so show me what you've seen as well. So um, Philippians 1, uh, let's start off here. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open. If you watch the intro video, we went through some introductory things here, but uh, so it's written by Paul along with Timothy. So all the way back in Acts chapter 9, we saw that Paul uh, had his conversion experience on the road to Damascus where he met Jesus Christ on the way to persecute Christians. So now this persecutor has become a preacher, right? The persecutor has become the persecuted in, in this conversion experience. Fast forward to Acts chapter 16, and we see Paul uh, coming alongside. He, he meets Timothy, and Timothy accompanies Paul. 
uh, Paul to the city of Philippi, where they meet Lydia, who's a seller of purple goods. And we talked about how that was an indicator that she was a woman of, likely a woman of great influence in this town. Purple was an expensive color, uh, just by the way that it was made. And so uh, he has some interesting encounters there, a demon-possessed girl who uh, is also telling the future, following them around, really annoying them. Um, so, gets thrown in prison. He has, these, he has a few experiences in Philippi that I'm sure are memorable for him. Uh, and, but nonetheless, he preaches the gospel, people are saved, a church is established, and Paul and Timothy move on. And one quick thing, as, as we kind of like, uh, th this has nothing to do with Philippians. This is kind of like a side note uh, for me. Just so you know, uh, Paul, when you see him in the book of Acts, he's first referred to as Saul, so in Acts chapter 9. Uh, Saul, then he's referred to as Paul later on. Uh, what, the way I grew up was, well, God changed his name from Saul to Paul, right? In the same way that he changed it from Abram to Abraham, like that there was this kind of like name change experience. We actually don't see that in scripture with, with Saul. Really what we see in the difference of names is the difference between uh, Paul's Hebrew name and his Greek name, uh, or his, his Jewish name and his Gentile name. And so really what we see in, in, the, in the shift in Paul's name being used from Saul to Paul really is an indication of what his primary mission is in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. It's not necessarily because Jesus changed his name. We, we, we don't have a, a biblical basis for that. So it's not a big deal, but it's something that, that I mean, honestly, it's been fairly recently that, uh, that I kind of like discovered that and was like, oh man, I grew up thinking this way and now I thought this. So that was free. Uh, so now Paul's writing to the believers in Philippi. Uh, likely he was in prison in Rome during this time, but he addresses the letter uh, as being from Paul and Timothy. It's not because Timothy was with him, but it's because the church in Philippi would have been really familiar with Timothy since Timothy was with Paul uh, at the beginning of the start of the church. And we see in chapter two that Paul intends to send Timothy ahead to Philippi. So that's probably why Paul's referring to both of them together, even though it's likely that it's just Paul who's writing the letter. So chapter one, verse one, I honestly had a very difficult time getting out of verse one. So I'm going to try to keep this short, but and get through the rest of the chapter. But verse one kind of wrecked me a little. So uh, verse one, not even the first verse, the first half of the first verse, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. All right, that's how far I got. And I spent a little bit of time there. So what is going on here? Servants of Christ Jesus. Now, servants to us is uh, probably a, it's a common word. Uh, we, when we go to a restaurant, we have a waiter or a waitress. We might call them a server. As you drive by a car dealership, they have a service center where you go get your car fixed. You, you, <laughs> you, if you're anything like me, you buy, you buy blinds at Menards and you're really confident. You're like, I don't, I don't need uh, a ruler or you know, measuring tape, whatever. Uh, I can just eyeball it. I know, I know how wide that window is. No, you don't. And you get the wrong size blinds. And so you go to the, you go to customer service to get a refund. Right. And so, but for Paul, when he's saying servants of Christ, he's not just talking about someone who refills your water. He's not talking about someone who refunds your money. This word servant is, is used 128 times in the new Testament alone. And every time it means slave or bond servant, 
So you might see in the New Testament uh, a bondservant of Christ. This is the same word, servant of Christ, means slave. And so if, if, if that kind of throws some alarms off in your head, it should, uh, because for us, we equate slavery with Western slavery. Biblical slavery was a very different thing than Western slavery, especially in this, in, in this cultural climate. Uh, you say the word slave, we're automatically going to think racial tensions, Western slavery, an evil that happened in the history of our country. That is very different than what biblical slavery actually is. And so if you want more on that, you can go to the, the archive section of our website for the podcast and, and click. It'll take you a little bit, but click to, I think it's February uh, 26th of 2017 on the message in Exodus 21. I kind of explained what was this difference between biblical slavery and Western slavery. So when Paul is referring to himself as a slave, we need to, we need to have a different mindset than maybe what we would normally think. But slavery in, in biblical times still meant that a person's entire livelihood and purpose was determined by their master. Their entire livelihood and their purpose in life was determined by their master. They didn't get to determine what their purpose was, and they didn't get to determine exactly the way in which they would uh, gain their livelihood. That was still an element of seeing yourself as a, as a slave or a bondservant to someone. And so Paul is using this word to describe the way that he viewed, that he and Timothy viewed their life. And you might go, well, yeah, that makes sense because Paul is like in the ministry, right? Like he's a, uh, he's, he's a pastor or he, he's an apostle, like the apostle Paul. Like, of course it would be for the professional Christians that, that their entire livelihood and purpose would be determined by Jesus Christ. Of course, that makes sense for him. But don't forget that Paul is actually a tent maker, we see that in Acts chapter 18, that Paul uh, forfeits his rights to receive, uh, to receive payment for his, uh, for his being a pastor, you could say. He forfeits those rights in 1 and 2 Corinthians. And so Paul like, is living, I, I say all this to, to go, Paul is a normal guy. Like we, like we elevate him to this status of being like, oh, the Apostle Paul. And God certainly used him in very incredible and unique ways. That is likely going to be different than uh, the way that, or maybe the scope of, of how he uses us. I don't think most of us are going to write most of the New Testament. That's what I'm saying. So, but I also say, like, Paul's a normal dude. Like, he worked with his hands. He had financial obligations. Like, he had a job. Okay, and he's a normal guy. And the reason why I say this is because I think sometimes uh, we can look at, uh, well, being a servant of Christ, having your entire livelihood and purpose determined by Christ is only really possible if you're maybe like in the ministry. I think that may have been a culture. Hopefully we're getting past that. Um, but Paul saw that his master wasn't his boss or his job, that his master was Jesus Christ. This is who Paul saw himself to be. This was his primary identity as a person, not as a tent maker, not even as a leader, but as a servant of Christ. His identity was determined by his master. And this influenced the way that he lived his life. This influenced the way that he worked, which is why later on in Colossians chapter 3, he writes this. He says, bond servants, same exact word, slaves, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 
whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Obey your earthly masters. Obey your bosses. Obey your place of employment. Obey, obey your earthly masters. Why? Because when you're working for them, you're not actually working for them. Like your boss isn't your boss. As much as they think they are. <laughs> like, no, your boss is actually Jesus Christ. Like the way that you work, the way that we live, the kind of work that we do is reflective of who we believe is actually our master. So if you do like really terrible work, because you're like, well, my boss is kind of stupid and this job kind of stinks and I'm just on my way to something else, like whatever. It's like you have totally missed the reality that uh, you're not actually working for your boss. You're not actually working for your company. You're working for Jesus Christ. And I know, I know, no, I know no one else who has embodied this uh, in a more consistent, uh, unspectacular it's not sexy. It's not. It's just straight up. Every day is my father-in-law. He works at a place called Acumold down in Ankeny. It's micro-injection molding. I didn't even know that world existed before meeting Sarah. Right? He's been there for like ever, twenty-something years. You know, for some of you guys, that's not forever. But for me, at this point in my life, that's forever. And so. Uh, but he's worked there for a long time. He like started off on the shop floor, and like now he's one of kind of the main guys in their research and development department. But my, I'm, I wish I wish I could bring him in this morning because you would you would sense from him that every day, no joke, we talk about this all the time. He doesn't see his job as his job. His job is his ministry. His job pays the bills and provides for his family, but he sees his his workplace as the means to the end of being an ambassador for Christ. And so every day when my father-in-law, Phil, wakes up, he prays for two things. He prays for, uh, well, I wrote them down. He prays for influence and opportunity. And, and I don't mean influence like, like the promotion or the raise or, or like being buddy-buddy with the CEO. Like, I mean influence, like influence for the sake of the kingdom an opportunity to give a reason for the hope that he has in Christ. And you would not believe, like, like this, my father-in-law is the example of a normal guy working a normal, like, blue-collar job, but he's consistently over the, I can't count how many people he's led to Christ standing next to their workbench, just caring about them, talking to them, sharing with them the gospel, hearing about their problems, like genuinely loving people. And the only reason he's been able to do that over the last two and a half decades is because he sees himself not as a servant of Acumold, but as a servant of Christ. He works hard, he stays late, he gets the job done and does a good job. It matters the way that we work. It matters the quality of work that we do because we're not working for our boss, we're working for Christ. But at the end of the day, our job isn't our job. Our job is our ministry. And you go, I don't work at a church. I go, exactly. Like, as you go to work here in half hour, whatever it is, like, you are going into the ministry that God has put before you, wherever you end up going. And even if that's going home, maybe you have the day off, your ministry may be at home with your family, with your kids, with your significant other, with your friends. So do you see your life through this lens? Like, is your, is your identity defined by the little thing they put on your name 
card, like your key fob thing, like with your picture. It's like, my name's this and I'm an engineer. It's like, no. My name's this, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Is that your primary identity? Is that the lens through which you view your life? Okay. First half of the first verse. We'll go a little faster now. All right, so... Verse 1 through 7, let's go here. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart, and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. What do we see here? We see that Paul's friends weren't just casual acquaintances or shallow golf buddies. But Paul's friends were partners in the gospel. Like their friendship wasn't defined by their by their commonality and interest or their proximity to one another. But their friendship was defined by their partnership in the gospel. Guys, we must cultivate relationships that have more than hobbies, sports, and small talk as their basis. Those things aren't bad. I hope, that, I hope that you enjoy hanging out with your friends. I hope that you enjoy doing things with your friends. It's not wrong to enjoy sports or video games or whatever with your friends, but what I'm saying is, is that if the, only, if the main basis of most, of, if most, if not all of your friendships are those things, you're missing the mark on what the goal of biblical Christian friendship is to be. And that is that we would walk arm in arm with one another as partners in the gospel. That our ultimate goal wouldn't just to be good friends, wouldn't be to that, well, I feel like I have a lot of people that I can hang out with on the weekends, but it's that we would be in the fight of faith together because the reality is that when your identity is a servant of Christ, you will put yourself in submission to Christ's mission. Submission, literally putting yourself under the mission of Christ. And the mission of Christ in the lives of his people is displaying and declaring the good news of the gospel to a needy world. That's the mission. And here's the thing, that's a hard mission. That's a dangerous mission. That's a serious mission. That's a mission that will be ostracizing. That's a mission that will, that will wear on your soul. It's a countercultural mission. And it's God's good plan for us as men, for us as believers in Jesus Christ, that we would be in this mission arm in arm together. Supporting one another, encouraging one another, spurring one another on, building each other up when we've just been torn down on the battlefield. To encourage one another and stand with one another in this mission. Do you have friends like that? Are you a friend like that? Or, or probably, the, probably the more appropriate question is, are you living a life that you would even need friends like that? Guys, I think we have a crisis in our culture and in the church at large, where there's a culture among Christian men that is passive, marshmallowy, like live for the, like work 
in the week, live for the weekend, do nothing but maintain your standard of comfort of life. And my fear for the men of our church is that we would live lives of such shallow complacency that we don't even need companions to fight alongside of us because we're not even in the fight. God forbid that we be a church, that we be men who don't even need meaningful, biblical, robust Christian friendships because we're not even in the fight. Like, why would I need that if, if I don't even need someone to come alongside me? Guys, we need friends like this because we need to be living lives as servants of Christ who's actually in the fight. Get in the fight, stay in the fight, and don't fight alone. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm, coming, I'm coming really hard, but like your presence here even this morning like is an indicator that I think, think some of you are on the, on the right track, okay? Uh, this is a great context. And if you don't have those friendships, like look around the room. Go, go do a little bit of, a, of investigation on Facebook or Vimeo and see who watched the video. Like figure out who, who that brother, who that sister can be that'll fight alongside you, okay? So stay in the fight. Verse 8. We're just driving through the first chapter here, pointing things out. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Approve the things that are superior so that you may be pure and blameless. How can we approve things that are superior? Well, we grow in knowledge and wisdom. It's the very reason why we're doing this study this way, is so that we would go to the source of all knowledge, the source of all wisdom, that we would be able to understand who God is through his word, and let that not just puff, up, puff, puff us up with knowledge, or not just give us a sense or an air of wisdom, but so that that knowledge and that wisdom could be used in such a way that we would give approval to what is pure and blameless, so that the things that we watch, the things that we say, the things that we do, the things that we give approval to, either with our, either with just like kind of our, our engagement with, our participation in, would be pure and blameless to the praise and glory of God. We grow in knowledge and wisdom to give approval to those things that, that are superior. This is Paul's theology of life, that his life would be to the glory and praise of God. That everything that's done by him and to him would serve as a giant flashing arrow to the greatness of God. And I say, I say everything that was done to him because often you can't control what happens to you. Everything, that does, everything that's done by you would be to the praise and glory of God. Like you can control that. You can control what you do. But also everything that's done to you. Every circumstance that you find yourself in would also be to the praise and glory of God. And he gets to that here later on uh, in verse, in verse. well, let's, let's just read through verse 12 through 20 here. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. That what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. John Piper says it this way. I'm a Piperite. I think that's what you call that. Piper fanboy. Piper says, God graciously gives suffering and faith 
to his people so that, so that they might enjoy making much of Christ to their adversaries through fearless faith and humble love. I'll say that again. God graciously gives suffering. Just chew on that. God graciously gives suffering and faith to his people so that they might enjoy making much of Christ to their adversaries through fearless faith and humble love. In other words, your problems in life aren't meaningless. Your problems, your struggles, your difficulties, the opposition you face, like as you live as a servant of Christ on mission, in submission to Christ, arm in arm with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that the opposition that we, that we encounter along this path of faithful living isn't meaningless. Your struggle, your joblessness, your sickness, your plunging sales, your COVID-19 disruption isn't meaningless. It isn't meaningless. You see... Uh, many people are skeptical of a good and loving God because it's not because of the problem of suffering. I don't think that's what it is. Like sometimes we think, well, well, I can't believe in a God because there's so much suffering in the world. I don't think that's people's primary hang up. I think it's it's when they see suffering as meaningless. Because suffering will happen. And often, at times we can see like the purpose behind it or we can see the reason for it at least even if we don't agree with the reason for it. But it's, it's when suffering is seen as meaningless. Like, I can't believe in, I can't believe in a, a good and loving God because there's so much meaningless suffering in the world. And the problem with that is that how in the world do you know that it's meaningless? Wouldn't in order to say that this suffering is meaningless, that would have to mean that you are somehow all-knowing. You are somehow able to see in the scope of time and space the ultimate purpose of everything. Is that not to then establish yourself as God? I can't believe in a God because there's all this meaningless suffering. In, in, in essence, what that's saying is that just because I can't understand it means that no one can understand it. Just because I can't see the meaning there means there must be no meaning. Your suffering is not meaningless. It is not without purpose. Whether you see it or not, the struggles that we encounter in this life have purpose, have meaning. And when you're a servant of Jesus Christ, everything that happens to you is for the glorious and gracious purpose of displaying Christ as your greatest treasure and helping others see him as their greatest joy. Verse 21. For me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. You've probably heard this verse before. What does this mean? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Well, Paul just said, let's look at verse 20. He says, My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. How is Christ honored in Paul's body? So if to live is Christ... If that means that I honor Christ in my body, what does it look like to honor Christ in your body? Just follow the flow of logic here that Paul's laying out in this first chapter. Look at verse uh, 22. He explains it. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. 
I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ may abound. To live as Christ means that we honor God in our body. And how do we honor God in our body? How did Paul view honoring God in his body? It was in helping other people grow in their joy in faith. Do you see that? Like the, just, just the logic of that, of that passage. Like to live as Christ means that as long as we are living, that our purpose, that, that the purpose of our life is to help others find their greatest joy in Jesus. You, you think that, that our mission statement as a church was this kind of like fun made up thing. It's like, no, this is, this is like biblical, right? Like helping people find their greatest joy in Jesus. This is, this is one of the greatest ways that we can honor God in our lives. That living is Christ when we come alongside other people and show them the greatness and the beauty of Christ. That's what made his life valuable. He said, my, my life is valuable insofar as I am showing people the greatness of Christ. And so the question for us in light of that is, where do you find your value? When do you feel most valuable? Is it when you're making as much money as you can? Is it when you're working with your hands, when you're being productive, when you're able to see your grandchildren or your family and spend as much time with them as you can? Now, none of these things are bad or wrong in and of themselves. In fact, you should work hard. We just talked about that. Like work, it's, it, it'll, it'll be funny. Like as you work unto the Lord and not unto your boss, like you, it's likely that you will do better work. And we'll probably get promotions and raises. I'm not saying that's guaranteed. I'm just saying that can happen. So that's not bad that you're making good money, providing for your family, spending time with them. But that's not our ultimate purpose. Take it from Paul. Your life is most valuable when you exhaust yourself, showing others the goodness of Christ. To live is Christ. Pour yourself out for the sake of showing Christ to others. So to live is Christ and to die is gain. Real quick, how is death gain? Isn't death loss? Don't we say like they lost their life in, a, in that thing? They lost their life in a car accident. They lost their life. It's like, how can Paul say dying is gain? Dying can only be gain when death means that you get something greater in death than you could have ever had in life. Dying is only gain when death means that you get something greater in death than you could have ever had in life. I know I'm running out of time. I remember when I was, uh, this, was <laughs> this was like embarrassingly old, maybe like 10 years old. Uh, I, would, I would get a new game for my Game Boy Pocket. You remember that? Didn't have color. I didn't come out yet. Uh, two AAA batteries, that was awesome. So get a new game for my Game Boy. I remember I, was, I would be walking with my mom out to the car, praying that Jesus wouldn't come back before I could play my game. <laughs> like, I'm not even kidding you. I'd be like, be like I don't even know where this theology came from, honestly. Like, I grew up in the church. I knew, like, I knew Jesus was coming back. I didn't know when. And I was, like, I was like, but I sure hope it's not before I'm able to enjoy the thing I want to enjoy. Right? Like, in that moment, my, like, uh, like, 
like Kirby's World on Game Boy was of greater value to me than Christ. Because death would not have been gain in that moment. Now, that wouldn't have been death. He would have been coming, coming back. But still, the principle applies. How many of us are living our lives practically like immature 10-year-old Jake? Where it's like, yeah, Jesus is gain, but man, I'd really love to like, live to be able to do this. Man, I'd really be able to love to live to be able to see this. I mean, now for me, it's, it's, not, it's not a Game Boy game. Now for me, it's watching my daughter grow up, walking her down the aisle, helping Judah work on his car, like, like experiencing with my children their childhood and passing them off into adulthood. That right now for me is the thing that I go, to die is gain, but I'd feel like if I died, I'd be losing something. When we're servants of Christ, when Christ is our greatest treasure, it's not, it wouldn't, it's not wrong for us to like, not like to think about that possibility. I'm not saying that makes you unspiritual, but I am saying, like, where is our ultimate treasure? To die is only gain when you get something greater in death than you could have ever had in life. So verse 27 through 30, and then we'll be done here. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to you, to, whether I come and see you, or, an ap, or am absent, I hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit and one accord, contending together for the for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a this is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. Verse twenty nine, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in Him but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe, but also to suffer. Men, expect suffering. As a Christian, expect suffering. Don't think that it's weird when you suffer for being a Christian. I think at times we have mistaken religious liberty for religious ease. I might get picketed for this, and I'm not trying to be provocative, maybe a little. I think religious liberty in America may be one of the most dangerous threats to genuine faith. Because Christians are not promised an easy life, free from struggle. Now, don't hear me say, I don't despise our freedom. I think it's a beautiful gift from God that we are able to gather and worship in the way that we do, in the freedom that we enjoy right now. But God forbid that our primary identity be rooted in our nation rather than in our Savior. That we mistaken our religious freedom for religious ease. We are not called to a religiously easy life. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel. Guys, are you prouder to be an American than you are to be a Christian? You see, Paul wrote to the saints, not to the patriots. I don't mean the football teams. He wrote to the saints, to the saints who are in Philippi, not to the national patriots. And as we live lives worthy of the gospel, we will inevitably 
face opposition, which means that as Christians, we will, we will live in tension. We'll live in tension politically. We'll live in tension professionally. We'll live in tension socially. We'll live in tension culturally. We will often find ourselves like in the in-betweens of extremes, far right, far left. As a Christian, it's likely that you have to find yourself somewhere in the middle. Because there's some of this that I can approve of as pure and righteous. There's some of this. I can't all of this and I can't all of this. We'll live in tension. But just like, I, I don't know if you work out much, but you know the principle, it's impossible to get stronger without resistance. It's impossible to get stronger without resistance. Like it's, and it's impossible to remain strong without resistance. Like good luck with that workout routine where you go to the gym and you lift nothing. Like trying to avoid all resistance. Like I'll tell you right now, that's not gonna work. Sorry, I wish it did. I, sure, I really do, I wish it did, but it doesn't. We get stronger with resistance and as citizens of heaven, Live your life, men. We must live our lives worthy of the gospel. This is where true purpose and lasting joy is found as servants of Christ. Living our lives worthy of the gospel, arm in arm with one another as we are on mission together in showing people the greatness of Christ. So I want to pray for us, and then we'll have a few minutes of discussion, and then we'll get you out of here. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that it is your good plan that we live in community with one another, that you have have given Candeo Church men who desire to not waste our lives, but desire to live on your mission, in submission to you, as we show people your greatness, as we declare and display your gospel that we would be ministers of reconciliation. Help us to that end, see ourselves, to live in the reality that you have redeemed us, you have adopted us in your family, and we are now servants of you. Help us as we go in our day today to not be an employee of our workplace, but a servant of you. God, and would that inform the way that we live, that we work, and that we love others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.